Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. My guest today is Scott Ashley, who has been managing editor of the Beyond Today magazine and many other publications in the United Church of God for the past 28 years. He's also served as pastor. He's currently a member of the Council of Elders. He's a master photographer who has won many awards, and he's a respected journalist. On top of that, he's been a very good friend for the past 28 years, and I just feel very grateful for him to be able to talk to us today. So welcome, Scott. Oh, thank you very much, Vic. It's a very, very, believe me, it's very good to be here, <laughs> uh, being home after our recent uh, events there in the Middle East. So I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and talk with you about it. Well, good. Well, I'm so thankful that you have agreed to do this, having returned from Israel and Jordan. And you were there for the eight-day Feast of Tabernacles. You were you were in Jerusalem on the day of the attack by Hamas. So, Scott, I'd like you to share with us uh, not only what you experienced, but also some of the things that we've been talking about, the conditions, the complicated conditions in the Middle East. You've spoken about this before. You gave a Kingdom of God seminar in Lafayette, Indiana, when I was pastor there. You talked about this subject. And you've written an article that will be in the next Beyond Today magazine. But I reason that I asked you for a podcast because I would like to release some information from eyewitnesses, from people who were there, uh, and have you comment about what you experienced and what you saw. Sure, yes, I'll, I'll be glad to. Um, yes, dur- during the uh, the eight days of, of the feast that we were there, we, we actually arrived a couple of days earlier and went up to Galilee, uh, and um, in while we were in Galilee, we came within oh two or three miles of the Lebanese border with Israel, and then our bus also took a trip up to uh, oh probably uh, well less than a mile, maybe a half a mile from uh, a UN base on the border of Israel and Syria, and uh, that that was rather interesting because we drove by some of the uh, bunkers from the 67 war and the 73 wars uh, when Israel took the Golan Heights. And uh, it's interesting, while we were there, we our, our bus parked and, and overlooking a valley and then the border there was Syria and some of the UN vehicles came out of the UN base down below us and uh, told us in no uncertain terms to, to get out of there before somebody started shooting at us. Uh-huh. So so we did. So that, that kind of set a, a little bit of a tenor for, for the tensions in, in that issue, or in that, in that region, rather. And then we, uh, from Galilee, we drove down to Jerusalem, uh, where we spent several days. A uh, wonderful visit there, so a lot of, of neat um, archaeological uh, ruins, discoveries that are quite recent, visited the Temple Mount. Uh, Jerusalem itself was very festive, uh, thousands and thousands of Jews there to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which is just, a, uh, again, a very wonderful, very festive atmosphere. And that's the way things were when we went to bed on Friday night. And uh, Saturday morning, the the weekly Sabbath, which also was one of 
one of the uh, holy days, bookending the Feast of Tabernacles this year, uh, I, I woke up, uh, slept in a, a little bit, and uh, woke up uh, to get dressed for breakfast and uh, heard in the distance sirens going off. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all that unusual because you hear ambulances and police cars and things like that, just like you would in any major city. So I didn't think much of it. But then I noticed the sirens were not ending. <laughs> they just were continuing. Mm-hmm. So I went to the door, opened the shade, opened the window uh, to see what was going on. And immediately within the first minute or so, I heard about 12 explosions off in the distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd seen enough news reports to know immediately what it was. That it was um, Israel's Iron Dome anti-missile defense system intercepting rockets being fired from Hamas uh, some, I, I guess, about 60, 70 miles away. And the missiles were aimed at Jerusalem, which incidentally has a very large Muslim population as well. Mm-hmm. At least 30,000, 40,000 Muslims live in Jerusalem and many more nearby. So they were firing, and these missiles are not necessarily guided all that well, so they are pretty indiscriminate. And uh, had they landed, they probably would have killed a number of Muslims in, in Jerusalem as well. Mm-hmm. My wife and I immediately got dressed, uh, went downstairs, and were ushered. Um, they, they changed the location for our uh, worship services that we were going to have there that morning, uh, put us down into a basement meeting room slash bomb shelter. Mm-hmm. I've been to several different hotels in Jerusalem, and they all seem to have some sort of bomb-proof shelter within them. Mm-hmm. And this was down one level, so we had uh, had our services there. Of course, everyone is wondering what is going on uh, because the the scattered news reports we were getting were were very uh, very piecemeal, just just bits and pieces and and rumors there there's a term for this called the fog of war and then yeah. nobody knows what's going on just because of all the chaos and confusion mm-hmm. and that went on for for hours we uh we stayed and had lunch in that same room and then had a, a later meeting there a and a Q&A session to wrap up our trip and then we were scheduled to go out to the mount of olives and to a restaurant there that was all canceled because by now Israel was on orange alert, which is one step below red alert. And any uh, public gatherings are prohibited to, to yeah, just to control possible terrorist attacks or missile attacks or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we ended up staying in that meeting room at the hotel as, as news reports were trickling in. A number of our group, uh, I'd say probably about 20, were scheduled to fly out that night from Tel Aviv, about an hour's drive away. And they left. Uh, About a dozen or so were able to make it out uh, on their flights that evening. Seven or eight others were stranded there because the American Airlines, uh, all all the major U.S. carriers, uh, Delta, uh, others started canceling their flights mm-hmm. uh, or diverting them as well. So, so the people whose jets were already on the ground were able to fly out. Those that were coming in were canceled. So, uh, so we had seven or eight people who were stranded there 
in uh, at the Tel Aviv airport and uh, in, in in Tel Aviv hotels for several days. We had a few more who were not able or, or didn't want to change their flights, thinking the situation would change, and they ended up getting stranded in in uh, Jerusalem itself. Mm-hmm. My wife and I, fortunately, the second part of this trip was scheduled to leave, and, and a majority of the people, about two-thirds, were going to Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, leaving the next morning. So uh, Connie and I were able to to join in on that trip, and uh, we left 8 o'clock the next morning, uh, heading for Jordan. Um, we we drove quite far south to, to a lot to cross the border there. There are only three border crossings. Mm-hmm. And this one supposedly would be the fastest, easiest, although it took us uh, uh, roughly three hours to cross the border uh, there. Where, where's that border at um, south of the Dead Sea? Or uh, Yes, it, uh-huh. it's actually just, uh, just north uh, just north of the, at the northern tip of the Red Sea. Oh, oh Aqaba. Aqaba, yeah, yeah, it's called the Aqaba Crossing, uh-huh. I think. Okay. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, by, by Saturday night, we, we had learned what was going on uh, about, we were beginning to learn the true scope of the terrorist attacks and uh, the Israeli military coming in. And, and it took them a day or two to, to drive uh, the Hamas uh, terrorists. There were thousands of them who participated in these raids, uh, capturing different uh, Israeli kibbutzes that were nearby. I think they captured about 12, uh, to the best of my memory, 12 different kibbutzes, uh, basically slaughtered uh, everyone they could find, men, women, children, even one elderly woman in a wheelchair, slaughtered babies, several dozen babies. Uh, They were killed. Uh, They overran at least one military, Israeli military communication station, and it's my understanding they killed or captured everyone who was in there. And they took a last count. I heard uh, over 130 hostages mm-hmm. back across the border into Gaza. Those hostages were from 23 different countries. So, uh, so it's uh, kind of it's it's an international nightmare to try to try to deal with this now. Well, I know Scott. When when this was all happening, you know you were about six hours ahead of us, six or seven hours ahead of us. But one of the members from Toronto uh, contacted me 3.45 a.m. That's when the email was sent. I read it about an hour and a half later. And I had the sermon on that last great day, the eighth day. And so I read a report from him and also a report from others. And we as an entire congregation prayed, you know, for all of you. I mean, this was a very shocking, a very stunning moment for for all of us keeping the feast and i will say that israel was uh totally taken by surprise i i've taken to calling this israel's 9-11 because just mm-hmm. as the united states was totally taken by surprise uh, on 9-11 2001 by the attacks on the world trade center the pentagon israel was taken totally by surprise uh, i have recently learned let's see this was Friday, I believe, uh, a top Hamas official was interviewed, did a TV interview, 
and uh, openly acknowledged that they had a lot of help and assistance from Iran in planning this and that they had been planning it for two years. Actually, uh, the uh, Iranian general Soleimani, I don't remember his first name, mm-hmm. but uh, he was actually taken out by a U.S. drone strike several years ago. Mm-hmm. But he was one of the masterminds behind this uh, this attack. And it was extremely well planned. Yeah, they, they managed to block the Israeli communication systems, uh, monitoring the borders, the, the cameras, even the, the ground sensing sensors to, to detect underground tunnel activity and things like that. They flew paragliders over the border. They uh, landed uh, Hamas terrorists by boat, uh, motorboats, when it went around the border. Uh, to land on some of the Israeli beaches and advanced inland. So just a, a devastating communications failure, uh, not only for Israel, but for the United States as well, because considering how much money we put into intelligence gathering and so on, uh, we totally missed it. Uh, none of this was on anybody's radar. Well, that was the big, uh, that was, that was big talk here, is that it was totally caught flat-footed. Uh, it, there wasn't even inklings uh, of it. I mean, there's, there's always something in the air, but something on such a massive scale surprising everyone was really devastating, very devastating. Yes, yes, de- definitely. And and the number of casualties demonstrates that. Yeah, 1,300 dead and 3,300 wounded uh, last count that I saw. So, yes, uh, yeah, just, just to put this in perspectives, I, I mentioned 9-11, the 9-11 attacks in the United States. If, if Israel had a comparable population to the United States, the equivalent number of dead would be 40,000, 40,000 dead and well over 100,000 uh, wounded, uh, many of them critically injured. So that it's... It's a true national tragedy in, in Israel. A- everybody in Israel knows somebody who was either killed or wounded or taken captive uh, in that. Uh, on our last meal together Saturday night, uh, we had kind of a, a going away. Well, it should have been a very, very happy, joyous banquet for us, but it was it was actually very very somber. We, we had our bus drivers, we had four buses and, and the drivers of the buses and the four tour guides of those buses. And one of the tour guides had already, uh, was already aware of someone that he knew who had been killed. The bus driver for the bus that I was on uh, during our, our tours, he had one son who was already active duty military and two children who had already been through uh, their military service, but were in their uh, mid-20s or early to mid-20s, and were, pro- that well, Saturday night and Sunday they were calling up reserves. So I would imagine that uh, his other two older children were also call- called up as part of the reserves. And, and for that matter, he, he might have been as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, say he was probably in his mid-40s, so I don't know the age range they're calling up. But um, Israel has a a military of about 170,000 active duty uh, servicemen and women, so they were calling up another 300,000. So the size of their 
military is going to be roughly tripled mm-hmm. uh, for dealing with this. So, yeah, just a totally devastating uh, situation. And, and Israel, I might say, when we, we left Sunday morning, the, the streets were just la- lar- largely largely abandoned. There was a rail line. There, There is a rail line from Jerusalem to take people to the airport and back. And it uh, the, the rail service throughout the nation had been taken over uh, by the military to transport troops and, mm-hmm. and tanks and uh, our armored vehicles and things like that. So, uh, yeah, the, the nation immediately went on a war footing there. Yeah, just as of yesterday or, or this morning, yeah, there there are still rockets being launched toward uh, Tel Aviv, Israel's uh, yeah ma- major city where where most of the population lives and uh, and the airport there. So so this is still ongoing. Uh, well, it's... Israel beaten back the the terrorists, driven them all back and, and recaptured the towns. Uh, but they're still finding bodies and and still trying to track down exactly who was taken captive uh, across the border. As as we look at the news and everything that's happened and all the people who've been killed, and you know we still don't really fully know where it goes because there's a lot of commentary about this escalating to even worldwide proportions as as uh, Islamists and terrorists turn turn on in other parts of the world. And uh, this is where we'd like to hear some some commentary from you, Scott. Well, this this will get worse before it gets better. Um, one one perceptive commentary I read. Some of our old, older listeners will, will can identify with this. They they said what Israel is facing in Gaza is essentially what America American soldiers faced at Iwo Jima. In World War II, uh, Iwo Jima, one of the uh, Japanese Army's uh, most fortified islands, and they uh, had uh, months to a year or two to fortify the island with all kinds of underground tunnels, bunkers, booby traps, things like that. Uh, Hamas, for years, has been fortifying Gaza in that way. Uh, someone was just telling me yesterday that uh, they heard there were 300 miles of tunnels um, in Gaza, and, and the, these are lined with concrete. They're they're not something you can easily destroy. Gaza itself is sand; it's it's beachfront uh, on the Mediterranean. But uh, these tunnels are are made of reinforced concrete and. Uh, with multiple entrances and exits that are hidden in schools and mosques and uh, playgrounds in uh, private homes office buildings hospitals all, all kinds of things so it is just a a rat's nest of of, of death for mm-hmm. for the military to try to go in there and that's one reason why it's taking so long and and pounding uh, Gaza by air uh, and artillery to to destroy as much of the terrorist infrastructure as they can from above ground, but eventually they will have to go in and start going below ground to deal with this. And it is there there will no doubt be be very high casualties as a result of this. 
Well, that's the thing, is that this is just the, the, the beginning, it seems. Uh, maybe one thing you can explain uh, to, to all of us is Gaza itself. I mean, when you take a look at the map, it's only like, like uh, 20 miles by 15. <laughs> it's very, very small geographically. There's metropolitan areas in the U.S. that are bigger. It has 2.2 yeah. million people. Is it uh, a country of its own? I have been to Gaza on a group tour. This is back in college days, or when I graduated from college, when we went down to the beaches there in Ashkelon and you know uh, the, the seacoast there. And we drove into Gaza. I'll have to say there's a spirit about that city that was very, very grim, you know, as people stared at our tour bus, <laughs> you know, and looked at it. I remember, and I remember distinctly of, you know, driving through Gaza, we were not allowed off the bus, but just kind of drove through it. Is, is it a, is it a, a sovereign nation? How, how, how does it position itself politically? Well, it does have a complicated history. Uh, it had been ruled by the Ottoman Empire up until the end of World War One. And then it became part of what's called the, the British Mandate after World War I. The, the territories of the Ottoman Empire were divided up among the the French, the British. And uh, so so this area, Palestine, as, as it was was termed under British rule, uh, Gaza was, was part of that. Then it was after the British withdrew and, and Israel gained independence, uh, there was an immediate war as Israel was attacked from Egypt, from Syria, from Lebanon, from Jordan. I think even Saudi Arabia got in on the act in Iraq. Uh, so they were attacked on all sides. And uh, uh, bottom line is Egypt ended up controlling Gaza mm-hmm. after, after that 1948 war. Then in the 67 war, uh, in which uh, Egypt attacked, uh, Israel and uh, and Syria and Jordan, and they all lost territory. And and part of part of the fallout from that was Israel conquered mm-hmm. from Egypt. So Israel administered it from '67 until 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel withdrew in 2005 to try to make peace. They had already made um, signed a peace treaty with Egypt. Uh, it's interesting, Egypt did not want Gaza. Egypt has actually blocked off any of the Gazans from fleeing, uh, crossing the border into Egypt. They they don't want them there. Jordan doesn't want them. Syria doesn't want them. Lebanon doesn't want them um, because they, they, they have such a history of trouble. But uh, So Israel withdrew almost 20 years ago and turned it over to, to Gaza to, to for self-rule. So, so all of these... Oh, signs you see in protests about, you know, stop the Israeli occupation. It's it's nonsense. It's a complete lie because Gaza has been self-ruling for nearly 20 years now. Mm-hmm. They had elections uh, the following year, 2006, and Hamas was voted into power. And there were two major Arab party slash political movements, Fatah, which itself had its roots in, in terrorism, and Hamas. And Hamas was fairly new. I think they were only begun in 87, if my memory is correct. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't take them long before they were starting to carry out terrorist attacks. So so they have a, a long history of violence. But 
Uh, Hamas and Fatah actually had a minor civil war to, as to who was going to control Gaza. Mm-hmm. And Hamas won. One of their techniques for intimidating political opponents, which showed their their nature early on, is is when they would capture uh, rival fa- fighters from Fatah. They would take them to the top of the nearest eight or ten story building and throw them off. So that showed the kind of brutality that they have since become known for. So that once they had elections, there there were there have been no other elections in Gaza since. So Hamas gained power. They rule with an iron fist any UN aid or United States aid or European Union aid that comes in. A lot of it gets skimmed off by the leadership. So they live in luxury and hotels in Bahrain and and Qatar and Turkey and Syria and Lebanon. Uh, Mm -hmm. Live like kings while most of the people uh, suffer from lack of of clean water, electricity, uh, other other types of infrastructure, and so on. Uh, one, one particularly horrifying thing that I came across uh, just in the last few days is a lot of the the missiles, hundreds of missiles, have been manufactured in Gaza and sent and, and sent flying toward Israel, Israeli cities is uh, the bodies of those missiles are constructed out of water pipes. <laughs> water pipes that were sent to Gaza for providing clean water for the inhabitants there, but they they either divert the pipes or dig up the pipes and steal them and make missiles out of them to launch it at Israelis. So. Amazing that right there in this enclave, it really is very, very small. I mean, I've seen maps of it now. They're showing the main road through it and the river that kind of divides... Um, I got North Gaza to South Gaza. How could yeah. so much stuff go on there? You know, manufacturing, missile launchers, all all this kind of thing, just out in the open like that. It's, it's just truly astounding that this little little enclave can create so much havoc. It, it is, uh, and, and that's a good word for it. Yeah, they they just create chaos and and havoc. The the missiles. Oh, I, I've uh, I monitor a number of sources out of out of Israel, uh, where where they show drone strikes on on some of the places they launch missiles from. But they'll launch them from uh, olive tree orchards, from children's school playgrounds, from the grounds of hospitals, uh, anywhere, knowing that the Israelis are going to be very hesitant to come in and, and bomb a school playground uh, with, with a drone strike or something. But but they know that's what... Ha- and of course, they're, they're just using a, a very primitive uh, tube-type launcher for these. So you can set it up, launch a missile, and, and be gone in 10 or 15 minutes, uh, well before the Israelis have a, a chance to catch them in the act or or uh, you do a drone strike on them or something like that. So uh, so, so again, this this strike uh, on uh, on that Sabbath a week ago, I, I know they launched over 500 missiles. Well, and so it may, we heard 5,000. Uh, I, yeah, I, I know Hamas, Hamas boasted of, of thousands of missiles. I I don't necessarily think that's true, but mm-hmm. but what they were trying to do is is to overwhelm the Israeli missile defense system mm-hmm. because it's only capable of tracking 
X number of targets in the air at once. So, um, so, so yeah, they were just trying to overwhelm it and and strike Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Ashkelon and other or other cities with hundreds of of missiles. So some of them did get through uh, because the system was overwhelmed at times. And that's where some additional Israeli casualties came from. Mm -hmm. um, just over, uh, let's see, Friday, I was looking. We have a, a news photo source for, for um, it's an international news source that we draw a lot of our news photos from, from our, for our publications. And I was scrolling through several hundred photos uh, of the last week and and yes there there were burning industrial areas in in israel uh cars that were blown up and burning uh, uh shrapnel uh, shrapnel holes in the walls of apartment buildings uh thing, things like this and and they also showed uh some of the slaughter in uh, some of the kibbutzes as well yep. and the that was taking place uh, a number of bodies there and burned you know, cars with bullet holes all through them so people who are saying these things are are faked and lies and so on are just disgusting liars I mean, i've seen the the photos of these things uh the damage caused by these attacks the deaths caused by these attacks and it's just horrifying is is horrifying and a term that's been used in the news, which I found an interesting term, is this is pure evil, you know, which is a kind of, uh, you know, evil beyond being evil. There is no sense to it. There's no purpose. It's suicidal because in the end you will die. I mean, the ones who are perpetrating it, and it's something which is so indiscriminate to the population, to women, to children, to babies, you know, to kindergartens and so forth. Uh, it, it's just beyond words of, of what's happening to the population and how they have no conscience and haven't for years, you know, haven't for centuries. And maybe, Scott, you can tell us a little bit about the background of Hamas, you know, where they came from. Where did, where did this hostility uh, come from? Um, I know you mentioned mm -hmm. in, your, in, in your article so well, I found that to be very intriguing, but uh, could you speak to that? Uh, sure, be, be glad to, and, and it is very enlightening. It, it is it is definitely not politically correct. I, I have never seen any major Western news organization report on this, although anyone can go on the internet and find it. But uh, Hamas has what they call a, a charter. It would be somewhat parallel to our our constitution. It, it describes the founding principles of the organization and, and the movement. So uh, just a couple of quotes from it. I have uh, several of them here that I included in my article. Uh, these are just a few excerpts. There are many more like it. But some of the points from their charter state, uh, quote, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it, mm -hmm. end quote. Another quote from their charter, the Islamic resistance movement, and that's what Hamas stands for in Arabic, the Islamic resistance movement, uh, strives to raise the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine, 
and uh, Palestine and Hamas speak is the whole land of of Israel. So they're going to raise the banner. Their goal is to raise the banner of Allah, Islam, over every inch of the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, another one, uh, another quote, in the face of the Jews' usurpation of Palestine, it is compulsory that the banner of jihad be raised. Uh, jihad is Arabic word for holy war. Uh, so notice it said it is compulsory that the matter of jihad be raised against the Jews. And uh, another very revealing uh, quote from their charter states, quote, there is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Initiatives, proposals, and international conferences are all a waste of time in vain endeavors, end of quote. So, so all of these peace conferences and and so on, uh, peace talks, uh, their view, their stated view is all of these are a waste of time. And uh, because they, they are determined uh, to conquer and, and carry out ethnic cleansing uh, against all Jews living in Israel. So a separate and, Palestinian state is out of the question to them. That it's, to them, it's not, yes, that's a fabrication of of Western uh, do do gooders, well well intentioned, but totally unaware of of the mindset that's behind all of this. To totally clueless as to the mindset. Re really, all, all one has to do is is read Islam's holy book, the Quran, and and to see what their their goal is in, in Islamic thinking. They divide the world into two spheres. One is called Dar al-Islam, meaning the land of Islam, and Dar al-Harb. Uh, Dar al-Harb means the land of war or the land of conflict. In other words, the world is either under Islam or it's under war where Islam is trying to conquer the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all, all the wars of the last several decades now uh, in Afghanistan, in, in Iraq. Uh, th those are just the, the same mindset that is at, at work there. What kind of allies do they have? I mean, there's Hezbollah up in southern Lebanon, uh, which is even bigger and operates somehow almost like a sovereignty of, of its own. Uh, do they think the same way that Hamas does? They, they do. Uh, Hezbollah, Hezbollah means uh, party of God, party of Allah, Hezbollah, uh, party of, of Allah. So uh, they are an Islamic terror group. They have essentially controlled Lebanon uh, since the Israelis withdrew, oh, in the 1980s. So uh, they also have built large tunnel tunnel and bunker networks in Israel. Uh, and they have, oh, I've heard as many as over 100,000 rockets, uh, many of which are manufactured in Iran. Mm -hmm. They have shipped uh, through Syria or directly to, to Lebanon. If they jump into this war, all bets are off. Israel would then be fighting a two-front war on their northern, on their far northern border, as well as on their far southern border, and uh, 
And Iran is the supporter of both of these groups, Hamas and Hezbollah. Most of the other Arab countries are not wanting to jump in on this because they they don't want to empower these these people. Iran, incidentally, also supports the, the Houthis who are in the Arabian Peninsula and fighting to overthrow the Saudi Arabian government. So, so the Saudis don't want anything to do with this, and uh, nor do the Jordanians or, or the Egyptians. So like I said, they're, they're not allowing the, the inhabitants of Gaza to get out and enter their countries. They, they don't want it because they, they know the trouble follows them. So uh, if Iran gets into it, or Iran... Iran has a population of about 60 and a very large and fairly well-equipped military, uh, as does Hezbollah. Hezbollah actually has far more uh, soldiers and and far uh, better equipment than uh, Gaza, than Hamas does down in Gaza. Mm -hmm. So that could get... I, I hope it's a good sign that they haven't jumped in yet, uh, especially after... Hamas call for a day of uprising uh, among all Muslims on Friday and very little happened around the world. Mm -hmm. So I hope that's a good sign that Hezbollah is, is holding back and is not going to jump into this because that, that could be truly catastrophic for Israel. If that happens, they'd be fighting a two front war and then possibly Syria could also get into the war. So there would be more fighting along the Golan Heights then. So, uh, yeah, Israel could be fighting a three-front war if that happens, and it, it's just very, very hard to sustain uh, a war in a country as small as Israel is. Most most people don't realize Israel is only about the size of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. It's roughly 170 miles north-south to, oh, any, anywhere from about 12 miles wide at its narrowest to uh, 60, 70 miles wide at its, at its widest. So Israel is a tiny country, and to try to fight a three-front war there is, is just uh, a logistical nightmare for the Israelis. Well, somewhat, so many generalizations are made about the conflict in the Middle East. I had the most telling analysis, you might say. When I visited in 2005 in Jordan, and we got to know them for the time that we were staying there because we were working with the Al Hussein Society. And we had oh. kind of a final going away dinner and where we kind of let our hair down and just kind of just say, hey, what do you feel about this and what do you feel about that? And these people who were so friendly and so nice to us the whole trip, and they still are, we still, still have contact you know, with them, just looked me and uh, my friend you know, in the eye and says, you just don't understand us. You don't know us. You don't know this situation. It's far more complex than you can imagine, and you don't have it right. <laughs> Which was, you know, they were so serious. I mean, in all the chatter and all the good food and everything else, you know, they, they just really said how uh, we were so naive, and all the talk and all the pundits, you know, who are trying to analyze this, don't have it right of a situation and family matters that go back generations and generations uh, in, in this whole thing. So yes, it, it's really hard to analyze which way this thing will go. Here it is, eight days in, into this war, and will it just kind of simmer down like the Six-Day War? Uh, like I said, this um, 
day of uprising never happened, and uh, it'll just kind of go away, and we'll start focusing back on other issues around the world, Ukraine and China and everything else. So uh, what are your thoughts, Scott? That's very well said and, and very accurate, but most Westerners uh, do, do not understand uh, how small Israel is, as, as I just mentioned, mm. uh, the, how close the nations are there. Uh, Damascus, for instance, we I mentioned earlier, our, our bus went up to uh, the Golan Heights. Uh, Damascus is only 20, 25 miles away from where we were. And Israel almost uh, could, could have gone and captured Damascus in the uh, 83 war and chose mm. not to. They did take the Golan Heights from which Syria had been shelling Israeli settlements in, in Galilee. And we, we saw some of that on our trip. They'd been doing that for years. And finally, the Israelis had enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in that war, took the entirety of the Golan Heights and later annexed it. Mm -hmm. Well, one, um, one interesting thing uh, that the, the people that we were with commented about, you know, how far is Amman from Jerusalem? <laughs> it, was, it was 12 minutes by F-16. <laughs> you know, they had the distance even measured you know, by military standards. No, Israel is so small that, that you can, you, you almost can't turn a fighter jet around within Israel's airspace. <laughs> fly out over the Mediterranean. Uh, it, it is shockingly small. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, the distance from Amman to Jerusalem... Uh, let's see, there, there, there's not a straight line way to get there, but I'd say it's, uh, oh, 60 miles at most, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, just an incredibly close. I, I heard, I heard a, a, really, a really pithy quote years ago, and it kind of sums up the mindset between our, our Western, what has been a Christian mindset, increasingly disappearing and the mindset in the Arab world. And this, I think helps shed a lot of light on it. And the quote goes, goes like this in Christianity, God sent his son to die for you In Islam. You said your son to die for Allah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, captures a lot of the mindset of Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran that they are so determined to carry out their goal of domination of the world by the Islamic religion that they will send their sons on suicide missions and and make no mistake there were there were probably uh, well over a thousand or more Hamas fighters <laughs> terrorists who died in these these assaults Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there, they were, they were on, yeah, many of them were on a suicide mission. And, um, the, 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 I think to, to me, the most heartbreaking aspect of this is the captives who were taken again, 130 at, at last count from 23 different nations, British, mm -hmm. German, Mexican, uh, 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 Thais, uh, Peruvians, I think, just, just all over the world, Argentinians. And sadly, I don't think there's much hope for them once they get taken across the border and into those tunnels. Um, it's just going to be vicious. Uh, 
uh, to try. I, I, I find it doubtful that any of them will be rescued unless something very dramatic changes. Uh, Israel is trying to pressure them by cutting off electricity to Gaza, cutting off uh, food. Uh, they did initially cut off water, but I heard that that was restored earlier earlier today. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Israel is trying to pressure Hamas into giving up these hostages. But for for Hamas, those hostages are, are huge bargaining chips. There, there was a case with... Uh, an Israeli soldier who was captured uh, several years ago, Galid Shalit was his name. It took about five years for negotiations to conclude on that. And in the end, Israel swapped about a thousand imprisoned terrorists for one soldier. Yeah. And Israel knows they, they cannot do that again. And, and frankly, that is why Hamas took so many captives to try to empty uh, the uh, jails in Israel of of all of the uh, prisoners who've been taken, well, uh, many of them for murder and uh, crimes like that. And also, it's going to inflame the whole world. I mean, there are so many nationalities, as you said, twenty two, twenty three nationalities represented. That'll inflame the world mindset, and you know who knows where where it'll go, where people will ally themselves in various inconvenient ways. That'll, that'll be suicidal at, at the at the end. So we're talking about World War Three. Of course, we talk about World War Three with Russia and Ukraine and and you know how China fits in. But th- this thing has brought on a lot of world reaction, even from the Russians. Would you believe? So um, I guess it's something worth really praying about and uh, thinking about. Looking to the Kingdom of God, which has has a, has a whole different message uh, of peaceful world coming, a peaceful government that's based upon laws and love, uh, unlike this type of pure evil is what this is based on. Yes, absolutely. And it will take, yeah, literally take divine intervention to sort this out and and bring peace. And even bringing that peace will be bloody because the battle of uh, Armageddon will take place and, and massive armies will surround uh, will enter and surround Jerusalem at the time of the end, and it will be occupied by foreign powers, and uh, there will be massive bloodshed when those armies fight against Jesus Christ at his return to the Mount of Olives. So uh, we have not seen the end of violence and bloodshed in that area, not not even close. No, the book and, of Revelation talks about huge percentages of people that are uh, that are killed at, at the end, but at least... But but wonderfully, they, we know what the end of the whole thing is. Yes, we do. And, and that's why it's important to talk about what's going on in the Middle East, because it is, uh, we, we call it the ground zero of Bible prophecy. And it is because uh, Bible prophecy, uh, uh, nearly so, so much of end time Bible prophecy is concerned with Israel and Jerusalem and what is going on there. And uh, this gives us a little foretaste of what may be in store for that region here. Mm-hmm. It's going to get a lot worse before it does get better, but but we do have that hope. And, S- and it- Scott, you have been doing such a phenomenal job all these years as uh, editor of uh, the Good News, which which we were called before it changed to Beyond Today, but are pro- proclaiming the good news about what the Bible ends up with. 
what the, what the Bible concludes with is so diametrically opposite of what the Quran preaches. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Scott, is there anything else that you would like to share with uh, with our listeners? I uh, can't think of anything off the top of my head. We co- covered a lot of ground here, and uh, I hope uh, I hope everyone has listened to the end of this and and picked up a lot of insights, a better understanding on what's going on there, and and what uh, lies ahead for the future as well. So, thanks very much for the opportunity to. Uh, participate in this in this uh, cubic report here, Vic. And we are so thankful, Scott, for your safely returning, you know, from that very beleaguered area, you and your wife and the 178 there, who could have, you know, faced some of the same fate that others have. So thank you for your service, thank you for your friendship, and thank you for your insight. Oh, thank you very much, Vic, and, and you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to us today on the Cubic Report. We welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K-U-B-I-K. We'd love to hear from you. Write to us at vcubic at gmail.com. That's v-k-u-b-i-k at gmail.com.